The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Margaret Kerrigan from our New York office, in for Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. This week, our critic Louisa Buck explores dreams, desires, and the birth of British surrealism in a new exhibition at London's Dulwich Picture Gallery. And I speak to Elizabeth D., the founder and chief executive of Independent Art Fair, which opens as part of Armory Week next week in New York, about the city's changing marketplace and the revival of galleries in its Tribeca neighborhood. Before we begin, just a reminder that you can sign up for our free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and you'll find the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Now, 2020 marks 100 years since the birth of surrealism, which by all accounts is making a contemporary comeback with an increasing number of gallery and museum shows dedicated to it over the past several years. The latest show to open at Dulwich Picture Gallery, titled British Surrealism, features work by more than 40 British artists and creatives that contributed to the 20th century movement, such as Leonora Carrington, Paul Nash, Henry Moore, William Blake, and Lewis Carroll. Our contemporary art correspondent Louisa Buck visited the show and spoke with curator Dr. David Boyd Haycock, who traces the movement's roots all the way back to the 1600s. When one thinks of surrealism, one normally thinks of Paris in the 20s, André Breton bringing together a group of poets and artists and then expanding across Europe um, with with Salvador Dali, um, Max Ernst, um, René Magritte. Britain doesn't immediately spring to mind, but um, I'm here in Dulwich Picture Gallery with uh, David Boyd Haycock, who has put this extraordinary exhibition together, and surrealism has had a huge impact on artists in Britain and also roots before surrealism happened. I mean, David, you've made a point of saying that there's a surreal spirit in England that way predated the foundation of any official movement. Well, that's right. André Breton himself said that surrealism was something almost that he discovered, but that it existed at all times and in all places. So he saw people like the Marquis de Sade as a key sort of pre-surrealist, what we've called ancestors of surrealism. And there were many of those in British culture as well. So the most obvious was someone like Lewis Carroll and uh, the adventures of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. You also had people like William Blake, Henri uh, Fuseli, and um, Edward Lear, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. So there were many people that when surrealism did belatedly arrive in Britain in the 1930s, that um, British artists and British critics who were very stimulated and moved by surrealism saw many British pre-surrealists. And you've been very surrealist in your organisation this exhibition because you haven't done it in a kind of in a chronological way. And in fact, we're in the first room, the interpretation of dreams, which has doors opening of perception by Paul Nash. Um, but also in the last room, we have an amazing work by Henry Fuseli, who's on the precursors. So we're going to have a look at the one of the precursors of surrealism, but in the last room. Let's go and have a look. So now we're in front of a wonderful work by Henry Fuseli, circa 1783, Macbeth, the Weird Sisters, the three hooded figures with their pointing hands and fingers to lips to be silent. Now, why did you pick this work and Shakespeare Fuseli as being a kind of important ingredient within the Surrealist exhibition? Well, the Surrealists themselves saw both Fuseli and um, Shakespeare as key early uh, influences, people who had a sort of insight into what surrealism would be when the, uh, the word itself was coined, not until 1917, in fact. So the idea that surrealism existed before surrealism was even coined uh, 
was very key to the idea of the exhibition, has always fascinated me, but also fascinated the surrealists at the time. And someone like um, Shakespeare sort of penetrating into the world of, of dreams, the prominence, the importance, the great significance of the imagination and, and seeing beyond uh, an ordinary world into something that is um, spiritual, supernatural, um, beyond the imagination, the idea of, of dreams, the idea of magic, that there's something that can be seen within the world that maybe the average ordinary person doesn't see. And you've got, in here in a vitrine, we have works, um, with Eb- we have Edward Lear, the nonsense, the wonderful nonsense poetry of Edward Lear in his, in his drawings. We have, of course, Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland. So you, you, you very much, you know, put this... Also, in the last room of the show, why have you been so unchronological? You've got these thematic rooms. I mean, interpretation of dreams is the first room. The irrational and the impossible is this last room. You have rooms devoted to the bringing together of disparate realities. It's, it's very much thematically and very anti-chronological. So artists pop up and different, different kinds of you know, interpretations of ideas flow throughout. Well, this was very, very deliberate. The Surrealists wanted to break down all ideas of, of boundaries, of chronology, of... Um, walls and borders and we wanted to show that as much as we could not to do it in a chronological way at all but to just throw it all together to allow for juxtapositions for coincidences so that people could see things without it um, being didactic we want people to make sort of their own discoveries and so the rooms are loosely thematic but each theme that we discuss weaves its way throughout the whole exhibition. And even some of the, um, a couple of the paintings have sort of almost escaped out of the walls into the, the main part of the gallery as well. And I think we're going to go back now. We're leaving the irrational and the impossible, and we're now going to go into the room devoted to the interpretation of dreams. Now, the first room in the exhibition, although all the rooms are interchangeable, is called The Interpretation of Dreams, and we are surrounded by some extraordinary dreamlike imagery. And, of course, Freud was translated into English around this, around this time, wasn't he? So Freud's Interpretation of Dreams is absolutely crucial to the Surrealist movement, but also crucial to the British Surrealists as well. Yes, indeed, absolutely. Freud was a great influence on André Breton, um, who discovered or invented Surrealism. He first started experimenting in automatic writing in 1920, so exactly 100 years ago. And he was reading Freud during the First World War when he was working with uh, soldiers coming back from the uh, Western Front with um, terrible, terrible sort of mental um, injuries and using Freud and psychoanalysis as a way of trying to uh, help these men to sort of recover their sanity after the insanity of what they'd experienced on the Western Front. That's partly why in the first room we have um, Paul Nash's pre-surrealist painting we are making a new world painted in 1917 the the year that Apollinaire uh, coined this word surrealism sort of meaning something beyond and above the real and it's the most desolate scene isn't it I mean this barren wasteland of the trenches with these broken off apocalyptic trees this bleak light shining through called we are making a new world in the most sort of ironic way but this is a very surreal image while not being a surrealist image that's right so it's it is a sort of dream herbert reed the art critic and um, surrealist supporter called it a phantasmagoria nash's painting the phantasmagoria the nightmare of the uh, of, of the western front and said that nash more than anyone had brought that 
to life. But it's clearly not a, a realist image. And interestingly, Paul Nash, who became one of the key British surrealists in the 1930s, some of his early work is, for me, sort of almost more surreal uh, before the uh, discovery or invention of surrealism um, than the work he was doing in the 1930s when he was more consciously, self-consciously, a surrealist. Does this not bring, bring the point, then, that, that surreal, surrealist... I mean, the word surreal has now become a sort of byword for anything wacky and strange. Yes. But surrealist means signing up specifically to the surrealist movement as per André Breton at the head of it. And the British had a very kind of ambivalent attitude, it seems to me, Then this runs through the, this exhibition, that people um, you know, were affiliated with surrealism and then drifted off in their own direction. Yes, it was very complicated. Breton had a very distinct idea of what he wanted surrealism to be and the ideas behind it and was very didactic on who could be a surrealist according to his terms and almost everybody at one stage or another was expelled from the surrealist movement by Breton. In Britain it was a much more looser affiliation. A chap called Roland Penrose and David Gascoigne, they met in Paris uh, both Englishmen, both interested in um, French culture, exposed to surrealism when they travelled to Paris. And they thought, well, why hasn't this movement uh, exploded in the way it has in, in France and elsewhere in, in Europe? Exploded in the same way in, in England. Why have we not, as um, um, British writers and artists, found something in surrealism? And they came to London in 1936 and organised a very big exhibition of international Surrealism. Let's look at some images connected with the moment that surrealism came to Britain with a vengeance. We're now in the room devoted to forbidden desires, and um, f- among the forbidden desires that were unleashed were all these extraordinary works that came to London in 1936. This was a big major surrealist exhibition. We have a photograph here in a vitrine um, taken by Eileen Agar with all the sort of luminaries lined up, including Salvador Dali in the background, who apparently did not give a, give a, a lecture in a diving suit and nearly suffocated? Yeah, that's, that's right. That's probably the most famous story from the 36 exhibition is uh, Salvador Dali dressing up in, a, in an old-fashioned uh, diving suit with one of these metal helmets on and being bolted into it to give a lecture and uh, slowly suffocating and uh, rescued sort of at the last minute from his uh, deep dive into the subconscious. But uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a fantastic show, um, enormously successful. I mean, the press, by and large, hated it and sort of ridiculed the whole um, foolishness that they saw in it and sort of what they felt was some of sort of rather um, amateur art, to be honest, and they thought it was uh, not really going to be very interesting to the public. The public actually absolutely loved it and came in their thousands to see the show. And we're standing looking at a Henry Moore reclining figure, which... Henry Moore was one of the figures who were sort of corralled into, into ex- exhibiting in this show, but I think it's very nice to see his reclining figure, a beautiful little bronze, 1931, with the sort of cavity for the chest, with the vertical strips going down the bars across the chest, almost a nobular sort of bone-like limbs, next door to a, a Roland Penrose reclining figure, um, Roland Penrose being the person who introduced so many of the surrealists, but also as an artist in his own right, vividly painted. I mean... These images are very striking, but also show that you know, people who were affiliated to surrealism for a temporary time then went off and drifted and did their own thing, Henry Moore being a case in point. Well, that, that, that's correct. I mean, Paul Nash was probably the most famous British artist at the time to be associated with surrealism, but Henry Moore is the one who would go on to the great international fame. And it's almost so famous, um, subsequently, people 
often forget that he was a surrealist. He was actually acted as treasurer for the 36 exhibition. So he was very much involved in the, in the movement and, and loved the opportunity it offered to explore the subconscious, to break away from all and any sort of um, academic conventions of, of how art should be produced. And I mean, other figures, Francis Bacon, for example, there's an extraordinary Francis Bacon here, and indeed a Lucian Freud. Let's go and have a quick look at those, because I want to see how they were influenced by the whole surrealist movement. It's, it's, it's the, the reverberations of surrealism seem to echo way beyond any kind of group activity. This is a really rare Francis Bacon, Figures in a Garden, circa 1935. You've got this sort of stumpy, tree-like form. It's also like a torso. You can see some teeth kind of coming through these kind of mossy, swiped areas of paint. A dog is looming up as if to kind of bark at the the sort of lumpen upper form. It's not a Bacon the like of which I've ever seen before. No, it's an extraordinary work, and you can see why... Bacon felt that he should be involved in the Surrealist movement in 1936. The famous story is that Roland Penrose and Herbert Reed went to visit many studios around London looking for artists, British artists they might include in the show, and they went to Bacon. And Bacon wanted to be in the 36 exhibition, is the story, and was rejected, um, apparently, for being insufficiently surreal which seems extraordinary when you see a, a work like this, which is one of the most out- outstanding pieces, really, in the exhibition, by an artist who would go on to, to be one of the, the great British painters of the 20th century. And lots of lesser-known figures come up through this exhibition, which I find so exciting. I mean, figures, like, figures such as John Banting, who's barely known you know, in the canon of, of art history, but this is this wonderful, ex- wonderful drawing here, large-scale pencil on paper, the abandonment of Madame Triple Nipples, and there's this sort of bone-like molten form, very chic lady, that looks like a rather sort of flamey headdress, but then her whole body is sort of disintegrating. Indeed, she has, um, I think, yes, three, three and even more, more breasts than that. She's spouting breasts all over the place. Yes, she's fantastic. I mean, this is one of my favourite pieces in the whole exhibition. I think John Banting definitely deserves greater recognition. The thing with surrealism is it opened its doors to anyone who wanted to to participate. David Gascoigne, the poet who helped organise the 36 show, said that anyone could be a surrealist. All you needed was sort of pen, paper, scissors to cut up newspaper, some glue, and create collage and you're a surrealist it was there for everybody it wasn't an academic movement so someone like John Banting who didn't have uh, a a traditional art background studies uh, in in design um, really produces one of the really outstanding drawings of, of British surrealism quite up there with anything by Salvador Dali in my opinion Another little-known figure, to me at least, is John Big. They're these sort of prism-type crystal forms, composition, rising out of the sea, like a sort of strange island with a, with, a, with a sailing boat in the background. So you've got this sort of surreal storm erupting. It's a beautiful little painting. I mean, oil on board, just jewel-like. Yes, Big's a sort of uh, rather unknown figure. He was in Unit 1, the sort of almost sort of pre-surrealist group that Paul Nash had organised, which included people like... Henry Moore, but also sort of anti-surrealists like uh, Ben Nicholson. And, uh, yes, it's just it's a, it's a lovely little, little thing and a real sort of curiosity. You kind of wonder what uh, quite to make of it. And I think there are many paintings like that in the, in the show where you think, what is the artist trying to achieve here? And I think what's so interesting about the show as a whole is that each work is open to interpretation of each individual visitor. And this is what um, Conroy Maddox, uh, one of the great British surrealists, 
uh, said of his work is I don't seek an interpretation when you start to try and interpret a surrealist image you're sort of taking its mystery away he has that rather magnificent typewriter in the first room with the nails on the keys yes it's wonderful you kind of it's this sort of joke on on how uh, the fear of creation almost that if you you start to work and you're going to you can't actually type with this typewriter it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant little piece One of the things that strikes me about this exhibition is the preponderance of extraordinary, wonderful images by women artists. Now, women have a strange role within surrealism, don't they, because they were the kind of femme fatale, the muse. One thinks of all these sort of, you know, paintings of women without faces and all sorts of anatomical misarrangement in the surrealist canon. It was a very heterosexual movement, surrealism. But what, um, what comes out here are some wonderful images by, by women artists. I'm looking here at um, Eileen Agar's Guardian of Memories, a, a, a face that's been sort of bisected. It's quite cubist, but also kind of unsettlingly um, blended with plant forms. Or one of the most striking ones to me is this, this work by Ithel Cahoon. These three sort of dismembered lumps of sort of flesh castrated it's called the pine family but it looks like limbs and castrated organs and it's a very disquieting image yes uh, breton loved women but he didn't really love women artists he didn't really include them at all in the french movement but what was so wonderful about the british movement is very uh, talented women came into the movement some of them were exhibited like eileen agar in 36 others like leonora carrington were influenced by seeing the catalogue of the exhibition and produced really some very extraordinary images i mean cocoon's um, pine family i mean i've loved this since i first saw this in the 1980s it's so <laughs> disturbing as a as a man to to look at it, these trees that have been felled uh, and they look like they're sort of the lower torsos of uh uh, men with their castrated forms. It's absolutely extraordinary. Also, Edith Rimmington in the first room as her onioscopist, this bird-beaked figure sitting draped on an empty landscape with a diving bell beside it. So we're referring, it seems, to the Salvador Dali um, episode at the, at the British yeah, Surrealist yeah, Exhibition. Yeah, yes, definitely. I think it's an influence there. The onioscopist, a sort of interpreter of, of dreams, and this, uh, this strange bird-like skull figure in this diving suit. Uh, yes, it's, it's really one of the strongest pieces. I mean, certainly I think the women surrealists have, do come out with some of the most powerful works in the whole exhibition. So why do you think it is that, particularly in British surrealism, women really did come to the fore? Well, I think surrealism offered them a, a freedom to do what they pleased, to explore sort of ideas that were perhaps taboo. Uh, they were excluded in many ways from uh, conventional society. But someone like Leonora Carrington broke those boundaries, those conventions. She came from a very wealthy family who had very particular ideas about how she should live her life. And like Eileen Agar, she rejected that. And I think in rejecting those um, expectations, they freed themselves to produce some very subversive uh, works of art. One of the things you don't immediately associate with surrealism is politics, but one of the most striking images in this exhibition, which indeed arrests you the minute you walk in the door of Dulwich Picture Gallery because you see it straight opposite, shining through, lit in green in the mausoleum, which is already rather surrealistic at the centre of Dulwich Picture Gallery, is Effie McWilliams' Spanish head. And it's a fragment of a head that's really... The whole side of the face has been removed, and it's just this enormous scream with three teeth looming up from the spiking up from the cavity where the mouth is and a single eyeball i mean it's a 
image of outrage and obviously showing extreme feelings about the Spanish Civil War. Absolutely. Surrealism had its origins in the First World War. It reached its peak in the years immediately before the Second World War. The Surrealists were revolutionaries, particularly the French Surrealists. They wanted to break down society. They wanted to do all they could to change the world for the better. And they hated fascism. They were anti-fascists. Many of them were communists. And when the Spanish Civil War broke out in 1936, many Surrealists went to Spain. There's a wonderful anecdote of some English uh, anti-fascists arriving in Barcelona in 1936 and complaining that the place was full of surrealists. Effie McWilliams' sculpture is clearly influenced by Picasso's painting of uh, Guernica and uh, the, the scream of, of, of outrage at what was happening with the Luftwaffe bombing these villages and fascist um, atrocities taking place in Spain. And you've actually devoted an entire room also to political work in a rather uncharacteristically thematic way. Yes, I guess so, yes. Politics is something that is to be seen throughout the exhibition and the idea of revolution. This is why the British Surrealists loved a figure like William Blake, not just because of his visionary work, but also because he was, in his way, a political revolutionary and, uh, as well. So that, that it was, uh, the Surrealists are all about overthrowing uh, the old order, breaking down boundaries and barriers and really wanting to build a new society. Let's go and have a look and see how politics was filtered through the imagination of surrealism. So in here we have the politics of the surreal and the sense of surrealists reacting in different ways to the rise of fascism and the outrages that were taking place in Europe. But you also have William Blake over here as well. And so you, you very much consciously, and indeed, and indeed um, Gilray also, so you've got political from the past abutting the politics of the surrealists. Yes, I mean, that's part, in, in, in a way, to show that the surrealists did see themselves as part of a, a long tradition of... Uh, activism and that the strange, the abnormal, the frightening has always been with us. I mean the Blake is the head of a damned soul in Dante's Inferno and you've got this gasping you know, such a dramatic image. It's it's, it's incredible. uh, Breton saw Dante as one of these pre-surrealists as well and we have a figure who is in agony, in, in, in terror and then you have the, the Edward Burrough Blitz baby. Blue baby, Blitz over Britain, but my gosh, what a baby. I mean, it's this monstrous, big, bulbous bird form hovering over the ground with sort of smoky wings. I mean, a, a teeth gnashing out of its beak and red slitted eyes. I mean, it's an absolutely terrifying image, one of the most it, striking in the show, I'd say. It is, and with the, the figures cowering and screaming beneath it in, in terror, uh, they... The Surrealists wanted to stop war. Herbert Reed has a wonderful passage about how horrific war is, and many of the key Surrealists, uh, Paul Nash, Henry Moore, Herbert Reed, Roland Penrose, they'd seen war firsthand and knew how terrible it was and wanted to do everything they could to, to stop it happening again. When it came in 1939, when the Blitz came in 1940, uh, the destruction was uh, incredible. But many of the surrealists, like Burrow, like Sutherland, they used their surrealist experiences 
their surrealist idea of the unconscious and the horrific and the absurd to really capture what this new war was like. I mean, I'm looking here at this image by Sam Hale, I mean, another figure that I didn't know that well who comes through so strongly in this exhibition. It's Hitler must be overcome, and there's a, there's a, a newspaper clipping saying exactly that. But it's, it's mounted in a sort of architectural sort of surround, but with these terrifying figures hanging on a sort of, almost like a washing line, but with entrails falling out and sort of ripped torsos. I mean, the most, it's a small image, but it's, it's horrific. Oh, it's frightening, it's frightening. I mean, Sam Hale was a pacifist, in fact, and didn't want anything to do with the war and went to America during the war. And, uh, but yes, it's sort of like something out of Goya, these sort of disemboweled figures hanging from this, as you say, a sort of washing line. So it's a frightful thing. And it stands next to uh, John Armstrong's um, Heaviness of Sleep, another allusion perhaps to the Spanish Civil War and the blindness of people in Britain to what was happening and the, the horror that was just around the corner if something wasn't done about uh, what was happening in Spain. There's this sort of skein of ivy erupting from the ground of a rocky landscape and whipping itself around the eyes of a face that emerges out of another lump of rock. It's rather a female-looking face, even though you can't see the eyes, with Aram lilies kind of erupting from the bottom. It's a more dreamy image, but still one that shows powerful burstings forth. It does, and Paul Nash said that uh, dreams uh, was the sort of the key idea that came out for the public in the 1936 exhibition. And John Armstrong was the sort of the great painter of dreams in the 1930s. Though interestingly, he didn't see himself as a surrealist Armstrong, although many people saw him as the leading British um, artist working in that vein. And we have this sort of problem through the exhibition: is the influence of surrealism of artists like Armstrong who denied being surrealists at all, but yet who are clearly painting in quite a surrealist vein. Is that because the British just didn't like signing up to manifestos and movements? I think there's possibly certainly part of that, yes. Paul Nash was quite keen on sort of grouping artists together and um, in, in unity, in union, he thought they might be able to sort of break down the conservatism of uh, British culture. But many artists wanted to be independence they didn't want to be signed up to something so uh, you'll find some like borough being with the surrealist movement for a bit and then sort of uh, denying any involvement with it and, and wanting to move on and another couple of artists who have come through this show very strongly are Ruben Mednikoff and Grace Palethorpe. They've had a few exhibitions recently at the Delaware Pavilion and Camden Art Centre, but for a long time working in obscurity. And they were, Breton said they were the most surreal of the surrealists at one point, but then they were kicked out of the surrealist movement. They were. I mean, this was the problem with the surrealist movement. Uh, there was a degree of disagreement on who should be included, on what you should do if you were a surrealist, what you shouldn't do if you were a surrealist. I mean, we're looking at this Ruben Mednikoff here, Little Boys Don't Tell Lies. I mean, Grace Pelfort was a Freudian psychoanalyst, and they did lots of analytical work together, didn't they? And then, and then put it into images. And Little Boys Don't Tell Lies is, is terrifying, this sort of molten figure with another figure coming out of its leg. There's more fangs, there's googling eyes, there's w waving hands, a tongue with a lizard. They're standing on another figure that has eyes weeping and a tongue hanging out. I mean, there's mayhem taking place here. So it would seem utterly surreal, these two, these two um, artists working together. Definitely. Uh, Palethorpe and Mennikov, they really produce some of the most uh, obviously, clearly weird, surreal, disturbing imagery that was created uh, in the whole 
history of the British movement and who remained as surrealists. Many of the artists we've spoken about, people like um, Moore and and Bacon, uh, they absorbed surrealist ideas and then sort of moved on. Others like like Banting and Mednikoff and Pale thought they retained their surrealist credentials through their whole lives and wanted to live their lives as surrealists as well. This is quite important in understanding the surrealist movement. It's not just about how you paint. It's not just about how you maybe write poetry. It's how you live your whole life. But having said that, surrealism really kind of petered out in Britain after the Second World War. Was it because the war itself was so horrific and threw up so many terrifying, discordant, unreal imagery that it was just too much to have an artistic movement trying to do the same sort of thing? Yes, the, the, the Second World War certainly broke apart the surrealist movement, both in, obviously, most obviously in Paris, but equally in London. And then when you have something like the horrors of the concentration camps, the horrors of uh, the atomic bomb, you need something new. And the surrealists, many of them realised that. There, there was time for some, some new kind of voice to emerge. Almost the, the madness, the, the lunacy of human civilization had got too much. Perhaps the... the the, the great post-war work is that of Francis Bacon, and he, he captures through his work in the in the fifties and into the sixties really what the madness of, of 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 the modern world was like. But uses his surrealist sort of uh, influences and uh, origins, if you can call them that, to achieve that. And also the sort of psychedelia of of, of the sixties mm. and pop art and the kind of counterculture sense of, of making your dreamlike states, possibly rather more drug-induced dreamlike yeah. states, appear the sort of trippy, the hallucinogenic, that seems to be very much work, working on the legacy of surrealism too. I think that absolutely is the legacy of surrealism. I think the war, the Second World War, in a way, breaks up the surrealist movement and it sort of goes underground and bursts out in the 1960s with, um, with all, those, all those things if you think of, um, just say, the Beatles and I Am the Walrus, with this allusion to um, Lewis Carroll, but also it's sort of almost nonsense lyrics, uh, the, the psychedelia, the, the drugs, the sex, these are all things that the surrealists were, were hoping to do. And I think they hadn't broken down British culture in the way they hoped they might in the 1930s, but I think certainly by the 1960s they'd achieved that, or started to achieve it, certainly in a much uh, more recognisable form. So the spirit of surrealism lived on. Definitely, definitely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Luther. British surrealism is on view at the Dulwich Picture Gallery in London until the 17th of May. A bit later, we'll be looking at Independent Art Fair, which with the Armory Show kicks off New York's spring art season. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website. Coronavirus continues to take a toll on the art world as it spreads outside of China. Last week, the third edition of Beijing's Jing Art Fair, scheduled for May, was the latest event to be cancelled, while Sotheby's announced its April Hong Kong sales would be moved to New York. Meanwhile, New York auction houses have postponed their Asia Week sales in March until June. And as more cases of the virus are confirmed in Italy, museums, including the Peggy Guggenheim Collection and the Prada Foundation, have been shut down across the north of the country. An open letter endorsing Vermont Senator and Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders has been signed by more than 650 artists and cultural figures. Signatories thus far in the letter, which was released by the organization Artists for Bernie earlier this week, include Hannah Black, Nan Golden, Kim Gordon, Ryan McGinley, Martha Rosler, and Kara Walker. 
And finally, the Scientific Committee of the Uffizi in Florence has resigned collectively in protest out of decision by the museum's leadership to loan Raphael's portrait of Pope Leo X to an exhibition in Rome, despite its recommendation that the painting should not be moved. You can read all of these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back with Elizabeth D. on New York's shifting art marketplace after this. The apartheid regime in South Africa heaped endless economic disadvantage and personal indignity on the black population. A series of Groups Areas Acts, for example, designated areas for white occupation only, forcing millions of black people and businesses out of their homes. One victim of the acts was the photography studio of ZJS Jamande and Sons, now in KwaZulu-Natal province, which was made to resettle in a semi-rural, crime-ridden area miles from town. Customers required a permit to visit the studio, but visit they did, as shown by the thousands of images of men, women and children posing for Jumande in his studio, to be offered at Bonham's Modern and Contemporary African Art Sale in London in March. Bonham's Modern and Contemporary African Art Specialist, Helen Lovell-Lotti, said, Photographic studios in apartheid South Africa were one of the few outlets where people could express themselves. This extremely rare archive of images offers a glimpse of the fun and creative flair that defiantly asserted the right to ordinary life, even under such difficult circumstances. For more on this story, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. A decade after its launch, independent art fair has stayed small and fresh in comparison to its more commercial peers like the Armory Show, with which it runs concurrently in New York at the beginning of March. Despite this, the fair has still had to scale back, announcing last June that it would close its Brussels edition to focus on the New York iteration. I spoke with the fair's founder and chief executive, Elizabeth D., about how both New York's fair landscape and the global art marketplace precipitated this decision and how the fair is reinvesting in Manhattan's Tribeca district. So, Elizabeth, independence started as kind of an antidote to fair fatigue several years ago when art fairs were really at their height and people had a lot of qualms about them. People still do have a lot of qualms about them. What makes independent different than your average art fair? Uh, Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because I think from the beginning with the co-founders, Matthew Higgs, Laura Mitterrand, and myself primarily, we wanted to build an environment that artists would want to make work especially for. And this was something that was uh, happening, particularly in my own generation of gallerists who were working with such an increasing uh, demand of international biennials and artists that were um, coming up that we were developing in our own respective programs, trying to figure out where their true opportunities were. And we had the good fortune in that first 10-year period to see artists of several emerging generations seek and find their own homes in major institutions and biennials. And the marketplace was evolving around, it was having an impact on the market, but the market fairs weren't addressing the curatorial needs and requirements of the artists. So that's why we established uh, the fair 11 years ago at the Dia Center for the Arts Building, which is a former museum that all of us, you know, have wonderful memories of uh, in the middle of the gallery community that was uh, really existing downtown New York and Chelsea. What I think is really interesting now is that, you know, you, you've been more keyed into some of the needs of galleries. And in that respect, you've kind of also 
I don't know if it would be too bold to say anticipated this migration of galleries from New York's Chelsea District down to Tribeca with your own move to uh, Spring Place. And since then, we've seen several galleries open in and around you where the fair takes place and a real resurgence within that neighborhood that was kind of empty before. Can you explain how the fair itself has helped revive that neighborhood? I know you've planned a a walk that's tied to the fair, but separate from it a different part of the year. And how you, as a former dealer yourself, kind of know what galleries are looking for in a neighborhood. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because we really do feel such an alignment with the galleries, and we always have. And our challenges as a fair are very tied to the real estate question in New York City and how much those values have skyrocketed in the last 10 years and how to actually maintain a creative community of artists that can afford to live, work, and show their work in New York City. So we made the move uh, for those factors. We were, um, you know, seeing development and developers come into Chelsea and change the landscape of that neighborhood. And it's no longer a gallery community. It's, it's a development community. Tribeca, that Northeast corner has been a little bit in a blind spot and became a microclimate for galleries in the last three years. Uh, and I have to give credit to Jonathan Travis, the collector and real estate broker who is on the side of the galleries and who basically envisioned this tiny triangle, you know, of five streets where galleries could actually find, you know, the same quality as, you know, original Soho Flatiron building architecture for their for their exhibitions and actually afford ten year leases in this you know through a lot of leveraging and a lot of lobbying uh, and we're all connected in this community what you know between the collectors the museum uh, curatorial community and the dealer and artist community and this is a wonderful success story for the galleries it's a wonderful success story for the community here. Um, and, and I'm so happy that Tribeca has become, um, you know, a really interesting microclimate within New York City for the gallery world. I think the real estate question in New York is always like the, the big question. And, and it continues to be for not only galleries, but fairs, you know, both Freeze and Armory are always in a place just looking at with their real estate. It's difficult. It's, it's an oversaturated city. How do you help support galleries outside of just putting on a fair for them? Well, I think, you know, you have to look at where we are. New York City is the economic market driver for contemporary art for galleries all over the world. If you are in Paris, if you are in Berlin, if you are in Milan, if you are in London, and you do not participate in the American-based market, your sustainability plan is very jeopardized in those cities. We just happen to have you know, over 40% of the global market share here. And about 70% of collectors around the world either live here or have a home here. So that is an incredible statistic. It's the reason why uh, galleries from these other cities outside of New York really rely on uh, the model of independent and what it provides both as a marketplace, but also as a global community. And um, it's it's been a really successful thing. And the fact that we're now in a micro uh, climate of a gallery neighborhood, uh, which is also has a lot of energy and a lot of diversity, is is a plus. And I think part of what we've done to engage 
the Tribeca scene is uh, we started the Tribeca Gallery Walks. We started them a year ago. We've done two. We're about to do our third in, in May. And they've been, and we were actually doing them in collaboration with the galleries that are there, developing programming. And I think the last one that we did in September, we had over 2,000 people show up, um, which is an incredible footfall for the galleries uh, downtown. Um, so, you know, we're very big collaborators with not only the local um, scene, which is very important to us, but also the international one. Let's talk a little bit about the internationalism of the fair, because I think what's really interesting about it is that every year you bring in a roughly 30% new galleries. Why is that important? And, and how does that keep the fair fresh? And where are so many of those galleries coming from? Um, you know, it changes every year. Our value system within the art world is very much tied to content. Um, so we are having a lot of dialogues. We have about 250 galleries in our network, and we're always looking at new galleries that are coming in uh, or and engaging us as well. So it really it really depends. But what I find really successful with the model is that it builds an anticipation at a time where people feel like they've been overexposed to the same things and at a time where people are feeling that the menu of artists is getting narrower and narrower, both in terms of what's seen at galleries, but also what's seen in museums, and particularly in the high end of the market. So, you know, to re-engage with a place of discovery, to deliver an original experience is really important for us. And that's part of our core value system. We've never deviated from it. And we've always had this turnover. So, you know, this year we happen to have a lot of Latin American artists coming in, which is very exciting from historical positions to conversations around geopolitics of the region. That is something that has been building. And now you'll see it as a key highlight. You know, that's unique to this edition. So what's nice is that there there are takeaways like that with each show, and it feels fresh and people, it still is the art world's favorite fair for that reason. And what we have found also, uh, in terms of the market that's created from the curatorial engagement, is that there's an there's, we have this ability to introduce new collectors to galleries in a way that maybe wouldn't happen at a traditional fair. You know, almost 70% of the sales that were made by galleries last year were to new collectors. So we are expanding their world in a way that I think is is very competitive. This edition of the fair is the first since you canceled the, the Brussels edition of the fair. Can you tell me a little bit about what prompted your decision to double down on New York and move on from Brussels? And also if there is more transatlantic exchange happening now and more European galleries looking to show in the New York edition? When we decided to do Belgium, that was in 2015. It was also the same year we were losing our lease at the DIA building, facing what we had talked about earlier in the conversation, this astronomical development of a real estate situation in Chelsea. We had a really wonderful opportunity to become a temple founding cultural partner of Spring Studios, which had not yet opened in Tribeca. Uh, it was us, Tribeca Film Festival as the film partner, us as the visual culture partner, and then New York Fashion Week as the fashion partner. That was an opportunity, but an opportunity that I also had hesitation about, which was, were we going to be able to have the diversity of galleries here from all over the world with the economy of going to a very elevated facility that mimics, you know, a world-class museum environment? Uh, Would that be affordable to everybody? And you have to remember, this is, Obama was our president, you know, it was a different, totally radically different world. 
Um, we Brexit wasn't even a, a word in the vocabulary. Europe was a unified place. Belgium and Brussels specifically was a place that was very affordable for a lot of people in the European art community. So we thought, you know, with the Brussels city asking us to become a partner, we thought that would be a really valuable idea, that we would both simultaneously move to Tribeca, but then also have this building, which essentially was free, uh, and be able to offer the uh, most affordable prices ever in the history of, you know, the last five years of European art fairs to a very diverse and emerging uh, next generation group of galleries. So what happened there um, is a lot of factors. We had terrorism come in, we had Charlie Hebdo, we had Brexit, we had, you know, uh, you know, our own election. And the landscape changed. Um, and the reason we left last year was, I mean, the boring reason and the real reason is that we weren't able to secure a long-term future in that building that allowed us to build the fair. So that's the boring reason. Uh, and also our teams were working very hard between two fairs um, when we felt like the marketplace was you know, exponentially bigger in New York City. And we were starting to ask the question of, you know, how much time would we need to develop Europe those, those, those answers are already out there. Those are the real reasons. Um, we could not get a date in the calendar that was working for everybody in our network. Um, those are the real reasons. But the more interesting reason is the, the ecosystem reason. It's what is happening, the shift, and what that means for the international galleries who are not in New York City and the artists who are showing either in New York galleries in, but are not living in New York City or showing elsewhere. How are we developing an awareness of these microclimates of creation, uh, but also of, of consensus and development of art's value in the world. And so it just becomes so clear that collectors in Europe are really willing to get on a plane to New York and sometimes prefer it than going on a Eurostar. That's just something I'm shocked about. But you know, they're willing to, to do that. And in some ways, they feel like if it's happening in New York, it's, it is, you know, the ultimate for them. Uh, and the young galleries that we, you know, anticipated would be very, very loyal to the Brussels fair because its cost was a fraction of New York City. We're like, when can I come to New York? So uh, they understand the opportunity for their program and the artists. So, you know, we have a huge amount of support in making this decision. It kind of aligns our goals with our collectors and our galleries and the artists they're working with. We feel we need to make a very, very powerful impact with every show, um, and we need to accelerate artists' careers as a result of the four days. And in a way, you know, we're able to do that in New York in a, in a way that we couldn't do anywhere else in the world. So that's why we've doubled down and, and why we've made that shift. Great. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. See you at the fair. Independent Art Fair opens at Spring Street Studios in New York's Tribeca neighborhood on the 5th of March and runs through the 8th. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to the Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. And if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson, and David Clack. And David's also the editor. Thanks to Louisa Buck, Dr. David Boyd Haycock, and Elizabeth D for joining us. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. 
To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.